Welcome to Office Hours with DPT. This series is run by the Dartmouth Political Times, a non-partisan online publication at Dartmouth College. We aim to host discussions about all things politics and current affairs with Dartmouth professors and community members. I'm your host, Dhruv Uppal, a 22 at Dartmouth College. Hi, I'm Madeline. I'm a 23 and I'm your co-host for this episode. The COVID-19 pandemic took the globe by storm. Something that seemed to be far removed from everyday life has quickly spread and infected over 2 million people worldwide, killing over 100,000. In this episode, we take a look at how central banks, powerful institutions with sway over the global economy, have responded to the crisis and its economic effects. The date is the 15th of April 2020, and we're talking to David Blanchflower, the Bruce V. Rauner Professor of Economics at Dartmouth College. Professor, thanks for joining us. Sure. Yep. See you again. Great. Um, so before we get into today's topic, which obviously is central banking and monetary policy, could you briefly tell us a little bit about your areas of research as well as your experience at the Bank of England? Sure. Um, well, my, my, I'm a labor economist. Um, and for a very long time, I studied jobs, wages, unemployment. Um, and I was particularly interested in looking at cross countries. Um, particularly comparing the United States with the UK and Europe. So in 1989, I came to Dartmouth to write a book that I had been working on forever called The Wage Curve, which was precisely about the relation between wages and unemployment. Um, Over the years, I've actually continued to do all that work on the labor market, um, and I've actually become interested in happiness and well-being of people, not least that I was a central banker at the Bank of England, between 2006 and 2009, during the Great uh, Recession, and I started to vote for interest rate cuts for about a year ahead of everybody else. Um, And I was pilloried for it, but it turned out in the end that I had it right. But I was interested in the well-being of people. And since that time on that committee from 2006 to 2009, I've been especially interested in um, labor markets, recovery, um, and particularly uh, what's going on in the US and the UK and looking at austerity. And I've been wor- I, I wrote a book called Not Working, Where Have All the Good Jobs Gone? And that's pretty darn good preparation. I think that, that works a pretty good preparation for what's happened in the last month or so as the coronavirus hit a giant shock and it's hit labor markets especially. Um, and we have, we have to look for all sorts of sources to find out uh, what's going on because um, government systems are set up to tell us about things basically about six months in the rear view mirror. And what we need are data by the day. And we're starting to actually get that. And we can, we can go on to talk about that. But we're starting to see an absolute explosion in the United States and Canada of joblessness, people being fired, being furloughed, being laid off not having money for to pay for food on a day where I think I know people today have started to get their, uh, their, their checks and some people got their unemployment insurance payments today. But we are now in a situation where economists like me kind of are needed because everything changes by the day. So this is, that's the background and experience, unemployment, cross-country experiences, central banking. And obviously this looks like a pretty good moment for looking at that, not least because and I, you know, we can go from here, but I think in 2008, central banks and policymakers threw the kitchen sink at this issue. 
And then today they threw the kitchen, the garage, the dining room, the lounge, the upper bedroom and the, and the, and the Lexus in the garage at it. And that's probably still not enough. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. Um, and I'm, we're super happy to have you here. Um, so you talked a lot about how um, you have this background in central banking. Um, and so before we kind of talk about the crisis at hand, which is what, you know, we all want to talk about and as well as how it intersects with labor, um, can you quickly give a little bit of background about what exactly central banking is um, and how monetary policy intersects with that? Step back. What, what we're trying to think about is that um, economies go through cycles, cycles driven by the weather through harvests and whatever. Um, and the idea is that we need to somehow try and run some sort of set of macro policies to try and stabilize the economy. The sense in the past has been that the fiscal authorities, that's the tax authorities, can't really fine tune things quickly enough. So the, the balance of um, policy making moved to central banks, especially when central banks were made independent. So in the United, in the United Kingdom, most of the economists moved to the Bank of England when they were made independent in 1997. And so central bankers um, have been basically run monthly meetings. And traditionally, what they've been able to do is change interest rates. And interest rates have been the central mechanism by which the economy has been, well, controlled, if you like. So particularly a focus on inflation. So when inflation rises, interest rates have rise to dampen them down. And when in inflation has fallen, then um, uh, and it have become too low. Um, interest rates have, have been taken down. The problem, particularly in 2007 and 8, was that looking at inflation got you precisely to the wrong place because we had a financial crash. Central banks should have been looking at that and didn't. And what we had was a big collapse in output around the world. But what's happened essentially is that fiscal authorities until three weeks ago basically abrogated responsibility to the economy to central banks. The problem is that essentially we we got ourselves in 2008 in a situation where we started to cut interest rates. We basically got interest rates close to zero. And the problem was then that you, you can't lower the price of money. You have to raise the quantity of money. And so central banks, and me included, I voted for $200 billion of quantitative easing. Um, but that was the role of the central bank. Well, today, the problem is the central bank didn't have a lot of um, arrows in its quiver. So the central banks have been able to cut interest rates, but they're very close to zero. So they started to do unimaginable things. They bought all sorts of stuff. They bought uh, municipal bonds. They bought equities. They've thrown, as I said, the, the kitchen at it, but that's not enough. And so what we've seen around the world is that um, governments have stepped back in and started to put in huge amounts of stimulus in the UK. They, put in even relatively more in Europe, relatively more than in the US, $2 trillion checks going out today, but not enough. So the day of the central banker in a sense is not enough because the firepower left in the central bank is so limited. Um, and so what we're having to see is people, we need to get money to people. And we've seen scenes over the last few days of thousands and thousands of people in cars lining up at food banks. So this, is, this didn't happen in 2008. And just to set it in context, the decline we saw in, in labor market experience here in the United States in a month was about what it took 20 months to see in 2008. So roughly in your head, 10 to 20 times faster. So the speed of this thing has been a shock. 
But there you go. That's a long meander through, but I think I did pretty well. Yeah, Thank you. I yeah, agree. no, definitely. Um, <laughs> just on a mechanical level before we move on to kind of understand, you know, exactly how it works. Um, for example, interest rates. So once a central bank cuts interest rates, what happens after that to stimulate the economy? Like what are the exact um, well, it's, processes yeah, that occur? It's, well, it's, a little, it's, a little, it's a little bit more complicated mm. than that in the sense that um, there are what's called market expectations. And so the question is, does the market think an interest rate cut is coming? Say, if the market has already priced that in, when you actually do the thing, that might not have an effect. Usually what has, what has big effects is if central banks do things that are, surprise, that are a surprise. So one of the big things we've seen both of the Bank of England and the, the, the Fed in, in the United States is that they've actually done emergency meetings to surprise the markets. So that's a jolt to the markets. But essentially the way to think of it is, if you lower interest rates, that lowers the cost of money, it makes it ultimately um, less expensive for firms to borrow and it lowers the price of mortgages. So the idea is that a cut in interest rates makes, um, makes, it, makes it cheaper for people to borrow and a raise in interest rates makes it more expensive to borrow and that slows the economy down. Just as a side point, um, when I was at the Bank of England, the, 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 actually what was interesting was we were cutting rates quite a lot and I was known as the dove, the chief dove. And I used to get letters. I'd get letters all the time. Maybe you can guess what the letters would say. So it's actually quite an interesting thing for students to think about. Who would write letters to the central bank, to a central banker? Probably not Lex Madden. <laughs> actually, so who has time to write letters? Old people. Old people sitting at home. Colonel Ponsonby Smiding Kent. And guess what all the letters said? See if you can guess. We're cutting rates. They all said, Blanche Flower, you're a swine. Why would you be lowering interest rates? When I live on savings, you should be raising interest rates to 10%. But there's a good example of how unrepresentative the letters were because I used to, I mean, I, the obvious answer is, well, don't you care about your children and your grandchildren who are really struggling in this world? But there's a dilemma between people who want higher interest rates and people who want lower interest rates. Borrowers want higher rates. I'm sorry, lenders want higher rates. Borrowers want lower rates, and you're trying to stimulate borrowers. Um, and it causes a conflict because um, people who saved say, well, why should you help people who haven't? And so, but anyway, but that's, but that's what central banks do. And the one problem particularly is one size fits all. And so, the, the, so imagine if you're in one part of the country, you have to take the same interest rate as another part of the country, and that may not be a good thing. And if you buy assets, the problem is that, and you, put, you boost the value of assets, that helps people who are asset holders, but it doesn't help people who are not, so that has an effect on inequality. So, and central banks can't really do much about that. And so that means that they're reliant on, central, on, on, on the fiscal authority. So again, long meander through, but I think I answered the question. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's probably a good time now to probably summarise, I mean, what central banks have been doing that's so new and that's, you know, a, a, a novel response to everything that's been going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, th I think cent central banks have the ability, if we look in the last month, to actually act faster than the Congress. I mean, in the UK, the government can actually act pretty quickly. The prime minister normally says, do this. The problem in the UK was that the prime minister was in hospital 
And that actually had a little bit of an effect because nobody quite knew who could make a decision and he was sick in the intensive care unit. So that actually had a, an impact. Um, but what, so what's basically happened is, as I just said, that the, 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 the markets were essentially in, had priced in for quite a long time that um, interest rate cuts were coming. And as a matter of history, um, the central bank in the U.S. raised rates eight times. Uh, Drew and I have talked about this several times last year. The central bank raised rates eight times between 2015 and 2018. And in my view, that was a complete mistake. And they said that rates were going to rise three times in 2019 and four times in 2020. Well, that hasn't happened. So they eventually had to cut interest rates. And we get to March and, and everyone realizes that the economy is completely shut down. So what, is the, what does the Fed do? Basically, um, just cuts interest rates as close as it can to zero. Um, and we don't actually know what's called, we, we, in economics, we always talk about what was called the zero lower bound. And we always thought that zero was as low as interest rates could go. Turns out we're gonna have to have another debate about this because some places in the world have actually got negative interest rates. We can leave that for a second. We haven't done that yet in the UK or the US, but we could. So that's the first thing. Um, interest rate cuts, emergency meetings, and doing things in proportions we've never seen before. So when I was at the Bank of England, the tradition always was that you would move things by 25 basis points. So that means from 3.25% to 3.5. So in 2008, we did unprecedented things. We cut by 50 basis points, 150, 100 basis points twice. Well, now the Bank of England actually cut by 15 basis points. They cut from 25 um, 0.25 of a percent to 0.1. So the first thing is, this is a new set of multiples. Then the second thing is, have to pump liquidity into the system, have to actually make lots and lots of cash available to banks and elsewhere to, uh, to basically fill the hole that's been created by lack of, lack, of, lack of demand. Restaurants are closing, firms are closing, Macy's, Coles, the um, Gap, Nordstrom's. So liquidity has to be put out there, but you have to try and boost activity in the economy. So what the central banks are doing is they're buying unprecedented amounts of assets. And the idea is that, that, um, that if you like, boost how much money's in the economy, it lifts the economy and it tries to slow the negative shock that's coming. So that's the first, liquidity, interest rates, liquidity, purchasing assets, and then, um, I mean, if I'm teaching my class in macro, which I'm doing right now, and the class in the fall that I taught and, and, uh, for several years, I, I talked about what the Fed could buy. And Ben Bernanke actually told me this in his office once, which was the Fed could buy, until now, could buy things federally insured. So that was treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, and it had bought those things because of the housing market. And it also could have bought short-run municipal bonds, but it never did. Well, what's happened in the past month is basically in agreement with the Treasury, basically um, they're going to follow the edict that I was briefed on in, in October 2008, which is in principle, we can talk about it, but in principle, the central bank can buy anything, anything. And that's essentially what we're seeing. So central banks around the world have been doing things like the Japanese central bank already has been buying ETFs, been buying equities. The Bank of England has been buying private corporate bonds, including American corporates. And so now what we're going to see is that the central bank is going to buy and we don't even know how far it's going to go. Corporate bonds, it's going to buy stocks and shares. It could buy buildings. It could buy student loans. 
it, could, it, it literally can and probably will buy almost anything because the scale of this shock is so intense um, that the central bank is doing that. It signals to the market it's going to do things. That gives market confidence and it helps firms from not going bust. So that's essentially what happens. And it's trying to, trying to essentially do a Keynesian stimulus in a week that in, in 2008 took a year. Pretty swift walk through, but it's about, it's about think of, um, in, in a way, that the way to think of it is, so th for a country, think of the, a country as like a, a, a household, household wealth, country wealth. Well, what's happened to the country with this huge shock is a huge chunk of that wealth has been pulled out of the system. So what the policymakers are trying to do is to replace that in some sense. If you think, what's 1% of GDP? What's 1% of the, of the income created by the country? Well, if that's, if you work out what that is, well, you probably need to replace that. And this shock, we can talk about the scale of the shock. Can we talk about that? Perhaps talk about why they're having to do so much. I mean, people are talking about a 30% drop in GDP in a yes. quarter. I mean, yeah. that, and I annualized, but it, so we never saw in 2008, in the US, we never saw anything more than about two and a bit percentage point drop in output in a single quarter. Well, we, some countries, some East European countries saw 10 or 11 or so. Well, we're likely to see that. We've, and we could talk about unemployment, but some, some people, including the St. Louis Fed, have predicted that on average in, two, in the second quarter of 2020, the unemployment rate may go to 32%. It only ever reached 10% in 2008. So obviously, this, 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 that's the first thing. This has risen. And then the question is, and we can talk more about it, but then what happens? Once that shock's come, then we're going to open somehow. Something's going to happen, but we've got to worry about that. But anyway, so that scale of the shock, much bigger than in 08, and has come in a month, or even in two weeks, compared to 20 weeks, 20 months rather, in 2008. And talking about this idea of longevity, what effect will these, um, what, will, what will the forecasted effect be on the market um, for inflation um, or other kind of policies? Is there any maybe side effects um, that don't matter as much in the short term since we're trying to stabilize the market, but may be difficult long term? I'll give you a terrible analogy. So a boat, sinks right and there's people in the water two issues first issue why did the boat sink was it a design flaw but <laughs> there are people in the water right forget the design flaw of the ship that's obviously an important question but we're gonna focus on getting the people out of the water that's clearly the first thing to do second um, down the road, once we see um, recovery coming, then it's really quite easy to, to scale these things back. Um, the, the third problem is that it's very hard to see right now any downside risk from doing too much because we're trying to do everything we can to get the people out of the water. Um, the only risk we have are doing too little, right? You can think of the reason. The economy tanks, more people get sick and die. That, that, so doing too little is clearly the, 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 the problem. I don't really see um, uh, 
much of any risk of doing too much. The question then will be, and if we look back to 2008, the issue then actually turned out central banks came in, fiscal authorities came in, there was a global stimulus. The, the actual problem was that they, took, they stopped the stimulus too so then in a place like the UK in 2010, the economy was growing nicely. So the, the, the 2008 was that the Austrians came in and said, oh, it's, we got to stop. But there the problem was not that the stimulus was in place. It was the stimulus was taken off too soon. So, you know, we'll worry about, you know, we'll worry about, is there going to be inflation down the road, whatever. But people are in the water. And that's the best analogy I can make. And obviously the question is, what firepower do the authorities have and in a sense what you've seen is a complete collapse of the claim that government deficits matter we can't afford x and y i mean all of that was complete nonsense you didn't have to impose austerity you didn't have to you could to say we couldn't afford to give people health benefits we couldn't afford to raise the minimum wage all of that's completely gone out of the window it was always nonsense but so now we're going to have to have a major rethink and we can talk about what will happen what, what fundamentally will change in the future? I had thought that we would start to see things like declining bookings for cruise ships. But in the latest data I have seen, bookings for 2021 for cruise ships are hugely up. Now, why anybody would be booking a cruise in 2021, given what we know now, I don't know. But the recovery is going to be an interesting one. Our people... You know, think about Dartmouth. Are we going to are we going to open the full term? Are we going to remain remote? Is there a future for a campus in the middle of the woods? Um, are people going to save more than they did in the past? Are they going to not go to stores anymore? Are they are, are they not going to go to the gym? Are they no longer going to go to football games? I mean, an example: the University of Michigan, basically, its major source of income, hundred million dollars a year, comes from having a football stadium with a hundred thousand people in it. 15 times a year or whatever, and that pays a huge amounts of money. Well, is that dead and buried? Don't know. So obviously the question is on the out on the on the on the on the on the long run, how does it look? I kind of have in my head it's going to look like think of a square root sign or something. You know, reverse square root. It goes down, it comes up, and then it goes up. So my suspicion is we'll the policymakers will want to open up too soon. They want to withdraw stimulus too soon, um, and that will be the error. Not that they didn't do enough. Well, they did do enough. They should have done more. Clearly should have. Keep going, keep going, keep going. But the, and you hear the debate about what to do with the shutdown. They'll open too soon. They'll stop the stimulus too soon, as they did in 2010. So talking about doing enough, um, there's a term being thrown around. So helicopter, helicopter money, helicopter financing. What is that? So let's let's just <laughs> let's just let me talk about helicopter money against aircraft money, right? So what we've just saw yesterday was there was aircraft money, and by that I mean the government agreed to give whatever it was twenty-five billion dollars to American Airlines, United, Southwest, Allegiant. And so Think of that aircraft money, right? Well, aircraft money is not helicopter money. <laughs> helicopter money, I mean, it sort of comes from Keynes's view. That it actually starts out with the with the analogy that Keynes gave, which is you've got to get money to people. I mean, it's all very well doing this stuff, but think about that there were 10,000 cars lined up in San Antonio, Texas for food. And the evidence appears to be that stimulus money is going directly to people and they're spending on food, right? 
So Keynes talked about the first thing you could do in a slump was he talked to, gave a story about you set up factories to make glass bottles, you hire people and you print money and you put, get those people to stick the money in the glass bottles and then you pay them to go and hide it around the country and then people can find the money, right? So helicopter money is a similar kind of thought, which is that you put money in a helicopter, you go up and you fly around and you drop the money helicopter to people. You literally, it's literally about, think of the stimulus. In a sense, it's nothing more than that. And in a sense, in a sense you can see why the, why the helicopter money might be better. Think about, I mean, I was thinking this morning, uh, my son-in-law actually in his bank account this morning told me he got his money. He got his 1,200 bucks this morning. Right, great. But the problem is that there's lots of people who the IRS haven't got um, bank accounts for. They, have, they haven't, they, they, so 80 million people are gonna get this, but there's about another 70 million people who are due these checks who, who the IRS doesn't have a bank account for, and they've actually set up a, a, a place this morning where you can go and put in, your, put in your bank account. But what you need is to get money to people. So the idea of helicopter money is that this is the best way we can find of getting money to people who need it. Um, and that's not simple. I mean, there's lots of people who didn't file tax returns, right? The IRS doesn't have a, doesn't have a, a, a tax return from them and it doesn't have a bank account. Another idea, and one of the big things you might think about with digital money is that um, essentially everybody has a bank account and you could think helicopter money would be the central bank tells all the banks put a thousand dollars tomorrow in every bank account. You could think of that as a modern form of, of helicopter money, but the idea here is that that helps people, but that stimulus money boosts the economy. So this is about trying to get money to people as quickly as you can. The idea of a helicopter dropping money is just a sort of you know a, a nice way to think of it, but. I like the idea of helicopter money more than aircraft. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, I, I ask that only because I think there's this academic debate being thrown around, which is, is helicopter money kind of mixing monetary and fiscal policy? First of all, why, why would we care about that? So one of the thoughts always was that the central bank should be independent, right? And the idea was that, you know, the claim was made to me, I remember in 2008, that that this was, if the Bank of England had bought, I don't know, let's say shares in American Airlines, that they shouldn't do that because that was unmandated fiscal policy, right? But essentially what we are at now is that everybody's in this together. They're, we're all trying to think about how to do this. Um, and in essence, the, the, the coordination now, I mean, you see the Treasury Secretary in the United States, the Treasury Secretary, and the chairman of the Fed giving press conferences to debt together, trying to coordinate. So much of, much of what had to happen in 2008, we realized, so let's give me the story back. In 2008, we realized after cutting rates in October, November, we realized that we had to do quantitative easing, but we didn't know how to do it. And it took us four months. We had a whole committee called Crunch Co. And basically the committee was about trying to talk to the treasury about how we do this, about how, because the Bank of England couldn't put all this stuff on its, on its balance sheet. We needed guarantees from the treasury. So it was quite clear from 2008 on that you had to coordinate the treasury and the central banks. Um, and essentially, and oftentimes the, the, the treasury or the government had to give the central banks permission. So an example, 
the, for the Fed to go and buy stuff that's not ready set by Congress couldn't do it. So it says, well, I'd like to go and buy shares in Boeing. Well, it has to get permission from the Congress, the Treasury to do that. So a lot of this stuff has become out of necessity. The, the, the dividing line between what the central bank is doing and what the Treasury is doing is now basically blurred. I mean, it's, it's essentially what the central bank is doing is mandated fiscal policy. That's true. Um, and, and the dividing line now that was there, you know, my, my, my um, financial crisis class in the fall, I was teaching all about the fact that that didn't happen. Well, in the last three weeks, that's gone. That, all those rules are gone. So you're a great question. It's a really good question. But the answer is that now the dividing line between monetary and fiscal policy essentially is gone. I mean, it's the central bank's doing things that the Treasury wants it to do and vice versa. And of course, what happened was that Trump had been all over the central bank for having rates too high. I thought he was right, actually. I mean, I've said many times, I think Trump was right. I think the Fed made a disaster and put the economy in a much worse position in February than it needed to. So, the, you know, so that's the answer. Um, it's throwing the kitchen at it and you've got to do all the things you can do. Um, I mean, it might come down to, I mean, I suspect we'll be having a debate in two weeks about whether the central bank can cut rates from zero to minus a half and what difference that would make and what else could it buy? And we're going to, this ain't stopping in a month's time. We'd probably have a, an, another podcast and we'll, we'll update, but it ain't over. It ain't over in what they're going to be doing. I mean, partly because the $2 trillion stimulus isn't enough. We're going to have to do another one. Um, and just clarifying, Helicopter money, it seems like it's a relatively new term in mainstream reporting and monetary policy. Has it been used before, or is this the first time it's really been used in effect? My memory is that Milton Friedman talked about who many moons ago. No, no, this is an old concept. Um, An old concept. um, I mean, essentially, the way for people to think is that um, essentially, so look back to 2008, everything that happened between 1945 and 2008 was absolutely useless telling you what was going to happen in 2008. The only analogy you could draw was to 1929, turns out. The great financial crash of 29 and what followed. The great crash of 2008 and what followed. Well, now we have something which is even bigger than that. We've never seen. We've never seen things like this. We've never seen. I mean, an example. Um, so tomorrow, I'm watching um, numbers tomorrow, and I have, I have numbers already from some states. So I'm looking at UI, uh, unemployment insurance claims. Let me see if I can just find my latest um, thing. Yeah, so we're looking at unemployment insurance claims. Um, and in fact, we, we saw numbers. So I've got, I've got some interesting numbers. Um, let me see if I can find them here. Um, so so these, these are numbers. I, by, by, well, certainly from the Department of Labor, uh, we saw an enormous increase, which suggests that, you know, that this rise in unemployment is still continuing. So let me, let me give you an example. So we, we have numbers that came from, I've got numbers out of the state of Texas. Let's just get a sense of where this is going. And it looks like we've probably tomorrow, we'll, we'll, we'll probably get it, the number tomorrow will probably take us from an unemployment rate of 3.5% to about 18 in a month. Let me just give you some numbers here. So 
So this is numbers of UI filings for the state of Texas. So between the, the this is week ending, 22nd, 29th of February and the 7th of March, um, the state of Texas was getting about 7,000 UI claims a week, average, right? In the week ending the 14th, it got to 16,000. On the 21st, it went to 160,000. And in the next three weeks, it got 300,000 a week. Um, and on, so we're going to get a new number tomorrow, but the, the sheer speed of it. So we went from, you know, 7,000 a week in the middle of March to every week since then, 250,000 a week. Um, and so that's the scale of this thing. It appears just like the pandemic that the, num that the numbers of filings have started to decline, but we've never seen anything like this. We, we, I mean, literally, so, so in one week, I mean, I'm looking at the week ending the, the 4th of April. In the, a month earlier, there were 7,000 filings. And in that week, there were 320,000. I mean, 7,000 to 320,000 in a month. So, that, so that's really what's going on for us to understand. And we're having to look at this day by day. And it's, so, so tomorrow's number is going to be a big number. Probably we'll see a number maybe around 5 million tomorrow. So we had 6.5 million last week, 6 million the week before. You know, I mean, this is, and, and we're seeing the same in all the states, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania um, has now had 1.3 million increase in a month. So, so this is completely unprecedented. And how do we get these people back to work is what we've got to think about. And the helicopter money idea is because this is, so astonishing. Yeah, I, I do want to talk about unemployment because obviously you're a labor economist and that would be great to get your right. views on that. Just before we do that, um, it seems like, okay, so when I was doing Fed Challenge, we were told in 2008, you know, got near the zero lower bounds, nothing else we could do. Oh, quantitative easing exists. Then we move on. We come to, let's say, I don't know, last three or four years, um, hit the zero lower bound, oh, negative interest rates exist. Now, we realized, oh, helicopter money now is also a viable option. So are there any other tools that could, in monetary policy, <laughs> that you know, just haven't been mainstream that we could actually well, use? Well, right. Well, remember I said, it, I think at the beginning, and I think this is kind of what, what gets us on these lines. I mean, obviously, let's think of central banks against fiscal policy. Obviously, you're just going to have to give money to people. I mean, that's where we're going to have to go. I mean, you know, I earn enough that I'm not going to get a check. I mean, I'm, it, you know, I'm still getting paid, whatever, right? So we're going to have to worry about people at the very low end. So let's just focus on that a second. There's a, a, a nice, useful survey came out of the Department of Labor the other day, the BLS, which just talked about what proportion of people could live could work from home, right? And the answer is we think probably about half the people can. Well, half can. So somehow or other, we're going to have to get money and help to those people because they can't work from home and the phone's been shut down. So what are we going to do? So somehow or other, we've got to deal with this new phenomenon. Um, so the, the tax authorities are going to have to try and deal with that. But I think what you're going to see will be, as you say, probably a move to negative rates. But I think the idea that the central bank could buy anything, I mean, literally anything. So you and I could sit there and take a list. So supposing I say, let's start with, let's start with um, a, a, just an example. So a graduating class of 2020, right? So how are they going to do? 
This is a disaster, right? So the number of people who had a job offer three months ago, but now the job offer is being put on hold, whatever. So clearly one group we're going to see, I mean, the, the enormous change we first saw, a 3.3 percentage point rise in the unemployment rate of 16 to 24 year olds. So one thing you could think of is the central bank goes, oh golly, um, look at all these kids who are coming out who are graduating the class of 2020 and they've got huge student debt. They've got no job and they've got huge student debt. Maybe we just buy the debt. I mean, Trump's talked about, you know, deferring or canceling payments. You could literally start to think that the, that the, that the Fed could start to think about buying debt and, and basically removing debt. I mean, you could literally start to see things like that. I mean, universities are in deep trouble. What are you going to do? Well, a university could actually start to issue bonds and the Fed could buy the bonds. And, you know, they could. So there's all sorts. Of, I think you're going to start to see that. The central government has, already, has done it for airplanes. But, but what about half, half the restaurants in America probably are going to close? So, you know, with, with the, the potential is that towns can issue bonds. Your town has got to do something about it. It's, I mean, there are states that have balanced budget amendments. How are they going to deal with that? So the central bank says, okay, the state of Ohio has got a balanced budget amendment. It's got to spend all of this money out, issue a bond and I'll buy it. So I think we're going to start to see the answer to your question is, let's look to where the weaknesses are. Let's look to see where the bankruptcies are and the failures are and say, in principle, the central bank and the, and the federal government can do something about it. And I think student loans are a big part of it. I mean, in the sense that in 2008, you had to do something about the housing market. I mean, it might come down that the housing market is going to be in deep trouble down the road. But right now, I think you have to target people who can't work from home, small businesses, towns who are just struggling. Um, and I was reading yesterday in the New York Times a story about Bristol, New Hampshire, little town, rural town hasn't really had the coronavirus come but basically what's happened is its main factory that basically everybody works in supplies parts to, for cars it's just closed and now what's the little town going to do the local shops no one's going to the local shop to buy cards and and so this is so these are these are localized effects that they're probably going to have to deal with and maybe the town of bristol says i'm going to issue a bond I mean, we're really now in a new world. So I'm trying to be creative, but, but I think the answer is, um, and for, for those listening to the podcast, what we should be trying to think about is enumerating who is hurt the most, and then we should be trying to target those folks. Um, and you've kind of talked about now kind of switching towards unemployment, um, which I know is very much your, labor, your um, area of expertise. Um, and you've talked a little bit about what unemployment is looking like currently, um, could you touch a little bit about how, I know you've discussed how it's already different than 2008, um, how it might still change and kind of um, depend on what occurs in the future, and especially with social distancing and the kind of limits that people will have on consumption? Well, obviously, the first thing is that we don't exactly know. So obviously, we, we have data that takes a while to come through. We've actually got data from these UI claims. So, I mean, just for people listening here to have a sense, um, in the third week of March, so the first week, normal weeks, in the first half week, half of March, we had about 250,000 people a week signing on to UI. In the third week of March, we got 3.3 million. We got 6.6 .6 million 
um, in the in the la in in the la in the following two weeks. So that gets you up to 17 million people just signed for UI. So let's just get a context of that. The un the unemployment number in the country was about 5.7 million in February, right? So 5.7 million. We've already had in three weeks, and we're probably going to get another three. So let's say tomorrow we we've had 21 million extra. So we start out at 5.7 million. We've gone to 21 million in four weeks. Okay, so that's the first thing. And there are also lots of people who turn out to be unemployed and aren't eligible for UI benefits, and they're a really big problem. So this is about, so unemployment is a really big deal. Um, and particularly, it's going to hurt the people who are most vulnerable. The ones who can't work at home are the young, the least educated, uh, and low-income people, right? So those are the ones who can't work at home. These are the ones who's whose unemployment shock has come the most. Bartenders, I mean, you can imagine, no one's hiring bartenders, they're all unemployed right now. But there's another one which is a big problem. So that that just exploding. So when you have unemployment, what happens is your income falls, right? So the issue is gonna be, I mean, let's go back to, uh, Drew asked me, I mean, just think about people can't, can't eat at the moment. Well, in the next month, maybe they can't pay their rent, right? So then there's another thing, which is a really big deal that I've written a lot about, which is actually, even if you are in work, your hours have been cut. So we've seen lots of evidence of what I've called underemployment. And the data, we've had data from Canada as well showing exactly this. I mean, an even bigger rise in the unemployment numbers in Canada, partly because the data came from a couple of weeks later. But in both places, a huge rise in underemployment. And I just want to focus on what that means. So unemployment means you haven't got a job, but your income's cut. Underemployment means you'd like to work 40 hours, you can only get 20, but that means your income's half what it would have been. So people have very, have, they're gonna have a big impact on their incomes and wages have been an issue already. So this is, about, this is about the personal effects on people. And the problem especially is you don't want people to be unemployed for a long time. So the classic, let's just go with, I mean, we talked a bit about the, the graduating class out of Dartmouth in class in 2020. But think about the graduating class in high schools. Think about kids who, who've just got a high school diploma or kids who've dropped out. How are they going to do? And so the problem we, one of the big focuses we're probably gonna to have to take is, what about the transition from school to work? What about young people who aren't capable of making this transition now? There's no jobs for them, it's not their fault. And so we're gonna need to focus on the most vulnerable, the vulnerable, as I said, are the ones who can't work from home, and they are also people who are just trying to enter into this labor market. And, this, and the story labor economist knows is um, the longer a spell of unemployment, the worse it is, especially when you're young. I'm going to just throw this, I'll say it twice because it takes a little thinking. When you're young, a spell of unemployment, especially if it's, young, if it's long, creates a permanent scar. Whereas for most people, it's just a temporary blemish. So think of a spell of unemployment normally for people. It's just, it has a hit for a few months and then you go on and it doesn't have a permanent effect. For the young, which are the most vulnerable to this shock, the danger will be that they, it permanently impacts their ability to you know, succeed. And that has, leaves a permanent scar on them and on our society. So we have to look at um, the danger of having permanent scars, even when we come out of this recovery, and hence back to Drew's question to me about helicopter money and targeting it 
the people who need it most. I mean, what are we going to do about, you know, the kids coming out of high school, say? I mean, maybe they're all going to go to college, but I mean, our class of 2020, what are they going to do? Maybe they'll go and do a grad program. But think of graduating class of 2020 coming out of, not Dartmouth, coming out of somewhere, UNH, some local community college. What are they going to do? There is no job. There are no jobs for them. So yeah, we can give them some benefits and we can send them an unemployment check, but what are they going to do? And that's something we have to think about. So we talked about it being, you mentioned it being a long, the longer the spell, the worse it is effectively, which, which makes intuitive sense. And you recently wrote an article in The Guardian and you call this being as being a depression instead of a recession. Could you just spell out what that means? Well, there's been quite a lot of pushback against the word depression. I mean, so we certainly called the 2008 crisis a recession. And uh, output in the US cumulatively fell about 4% over the time period. The unemployment rate went to 10, and it was a global crisis. In the UK, the unemployment rate went to 8. So I, I kind of want to think about the depression as, so, as a phrase to say something worse than that. Right? You can't just say it's a recession and there's another recession. I mean, the only, the only, we, we talk about the Great Depression but the speed of the decline, I mean, 20 million increase in unemployment in a month, um, we've, this is sort of unprecedented. So, I mean, I suppose I could have called it, this is a bloody huge recession, right? But depression seemed like a pretty, a pretty good starting point. Um, I mean, it's pretty depressing in one sense, and lots of people are depressed, of course. Um, we will eventually see whether the right term is a depression, but a depression refers to something that's global and bad. So global and bad, we've already got. Now, if, it, if, if it's an if the example, just think in your head, what could the recovery look like? Well, it could be a sharp V, right? It could be just down a lot, back up a lot, whoopee. And if we discovered, let's say, a, a vaccine for the virus tomorrow, it might look like that. But then there's all sorts of other possibilities. Another possibility is think of an L, so you draw it and then the L goes down and the, and the recovery is really slow. Yesterday, the IMF basically forecast this, which is very worrying. It might suggest a depression. It basically said the US is going to see something like an 8% decline in GDP in 2020 and about a 5% recovery in 2021. Okay, so a shot pretty, but not, so that if you think of the recovery, you go down like this and then you come up partially. So that might suggest that this thing is pretty bad because remember I said to you, we went down, we went down 4% in 2008. So if we go down 8% and then we recover, I mean, that's, you know, it took about three years to recover the output. That just looks worse than a recession. So I, I, I want a word, I want a word that's worse than we had before. So bloody huge, I could have said, I suppose, or horrid or some, a horrid recession. But I use the word depression partly because it's so depressing. Yeah, I mean, that's a good way of putting it. Um, we'd love to pick your brain a little bit more, but I think we're about running out of time. I know you have a yeah, class. And I got to go teach class. Yeah, exactly, perfect timing. Class. So Remote thanks so much class. for joining us. Yeah, and of course. Yeah, um, listen in again next week. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. Of course.